What's the difference between being led by God or a natural inclination? Does anybody say that again, Lloyd? There's a big difference. Okay, I know, okay. so Lloyd says there's a big difference between what you natural, your natural inclination and being led by God. What is that difference? Anybody? Anybody, anybody have any idea what the difference between those two are? A proper way? How do you learn a proper way, Chance? A more correct, okay. But how, do you, how would you learn that? How would you learn to change from what feels like, well, this is the way I am, to this is the way I ought to be. How do you how do you do that? Failure. Study the word. Failure. Study the word. Um, I I didn't hear you, Brittany. Prayer. Good. Faith. Grace. Of course, we need grace for almost everything, don't we? We do. <laughs> I'm going to suggest one other thing. Um, the family of faith. That we need each other in this way. The, the example that I have this morning is different um, than, than maybe you're thinking about. The sign on the board out there says generosity. How many of you know babies as being patient? Are babies patient? How do you train a baby to be patient? You let them cry. Does that train them to be patient? Or just cry more. <laughs> you comfort them. Actually, I would say that it's almost impossible to train a baby just to be patient. It's almost just as impossible to train a toddler not to say mine. Yeah, or no, or, or yes. Actually, one of our kids said no immediately. It was getting her to say yes that was the hard part. But, but we learn this, that, that our lives take shape. We start off by saying, mine, give me that, and it's not fair. That's a natural inclination. How do we get from there to, well, what's mine is ours, what's ours is mine, to be generous, or I can part with that. Anybody? Anybody ever had... Um, any experience moving from one of those to the other? No, okay. Well, the storyline today has this thing that goes like this. So we've been following King David, and last week King David did what was sort of natural, which was he was living in the Philistine territory in uh, 1 Samuel 28-29 area, and he, and. And he was living in the Philistine area, and they'd given him a town of Ziklag. And the Philistines were going to war, and it just seems natural that if you're living in the territory, that you support the effort of the territory you live in. But when he gets there, do you remember that he was sent home because none of the other commanders trusted him? It just seemed natural to be there. Now, this is where we are. This is three days later. They've been, they've been traveling back home for three days. David and his men arrived back at Ziklag, and the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag, and they tore Ziklag to pieces and burned it down. They captured all the fa- women, young and old. They didn't kill anyone, but drove them like a herd of cattle. By the time David and his men entered the village, it had been burned to the ground, and their wives, sons, and daughters had all been taken prisoner. 
Now, it had just seemed natural to go to war, just as it had just seemed natural to go... I'm sorry, my alarm just went off, and I was thinking, 10 minutes to the end of service already? So something else is going on. I was thinking, I just started. Here we go. It just seems natural. This, this whole thing just is a series of what seems natural contrasted against what is right. And I just, as you hear this, just remember what seems natural versus what is right. David and his men burst out in loud wails, and they wept and wept until they were exhausted with weeping. And that's natural and right, isn't it? That if all your families have been destroyed or taken away, you would weep in this way. David's two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel, had been taken prisoner along with the rest. And suddenly, David was in worse trouble. There was talk amongst his men bitter over their loss of families, of stoning David. There is a way that seems right to a man that leads in death. I think we got a high-pitched whine. Somebody's, somebody's ear thing is going. Anybody? Nobody knows where it is? Is that you, Chance? I can't tell where it's coming from. All I can tell is it's out there somewhere. (laughs) I don't know that Alex can do anything about it. Anyway, I guess we'll plow on. So David strengthened himself and with trust in God, and he ordered Abiathar, the priest, son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod so I can consult with God. And Abiathar brought it to David. And David prayed to God, shall I go after these raiders? Can I catch them? The answer came, go after them. Yes, you can catch them, and you'll make the rescue. David went, and the 600 men with him, they arrived at the brook Besor, where some of them dropped out. David had 400 men, and they kept in the pursuit, but the 200 of them were too fatigued to cross the brook and stayed there. Okay, so... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wander and see if I can find where that is, okay? <laughs> it's, it's you, Chance. There's something in your system that's, that's whining. Can you hear it? Oh, there it is. No, it's... <laughs> <laughs> it's not a very long drive to nuts for me. Yeah, most people would say it's in my rearview mirror. Okay. So it seems right for the men to say, to blame David. David took them off to war, and if they hadn't gone off to war, they would have been there to protect their people. Right? That seems right to be mad at David over that. Now, I want to say it seemed right to go to war because you're in support of the thing. Now, they were sent home, and, I, and, and as we look at the story coming in the next weeks, the battle that they were sent home from was the one that King Saul and his son Jonathan are killed in, and it would have been wrong for David to be involved there, the next king of Israel, in the killing of the king. 
And that's a fairly generalized rule that if you're the next king, you don't want to be killing the king in front of you because you've just taught everybody how to get rid of the king and you're next. But there is a way that seems right to a man. But right in the midst of this, what is the, what is the natural inclination of, that you would do if everybody's blaming you for their families being taken away, what do you think your natural inclination would be? Would, would, it, would it be to say no, well, to go after them, but would your first response be, let's start praying, let's talk to the priest, let's find out what's going on, what God wants us to do? Is that a natural inclination? Just be honest with me. I see some faces in the room going, no, that's probably not how it would have gone in my life. But David here is, is not just the king-in-waiting, but he's the leader of this group, and he's going to teach them a way to be just the way that we as a church teach each other how to be. And so he's going to, going to ask God what to do, and God says to do this. Now, they go after the men. They go after the, the raiders, and they do that. And very typical of God's battlefield sort of tactics is to say, well, you've got 600 men, and that might seem like you could do something with that. Let's do it with less. You can see it all the way through Judges and Joshua. No, smaller numbers. Gideon keeps sending them away. We keep sending them away. We keep sending them away. What is the natural inclination if your troops keep getting smaller? What do you think is going to happen? You're going to lose. Why would you lose? Because you don't have the manpower. Now, if you go without the correct manpower and you win, what's the thought in God's economy on that? Anyone? It's from Gideon. He said, you have too many. If you go with this many, you'll think that you did it. The natural inclination of victory is, look what we did. So let's read on in the story. We're still going. We got, two th- we got a third of the people staying behind and two-thirds going on. Now, they've been on a forced march for they probably marched three days to get to the battlefield with King Achish, and then they marched three days back, then they wept and wailed, and, and now they're on a march again, tired. Some who went on came across an Egyptian in the field and took him to David. Okay, so now you're in the middle of this, this thing, and you come across somebody in the middle of the field. What's your natural inclination? I'm just... Do you question them right off what's going on? Do you know where to go? That's what I would do. Have you seen the Amalekites? I'm looking for Amalekites. You don't know anything about Amalekites? That's not what he did. David, they gave him bread and he ate and he drank some water. Look, they took care of him first. Is that natural? Is that the way we do things in the world? Do you see the juxtaposition that I'm trying to talk about? We do this thing. The first thing, we're in the midst of our loss and taking care of somebody else. They gave him a piece of fig cake and a couple of raisin muffins. Life began to revive in him, and he hadn't eaten or drunk a thing for three days and nights. Then David said to him, Who do you belong to? 
where are you from? Or who are your people? I'm an Egyptian slave of the Amalekite. My master walked off and left me when I got sick. That was three days ago. We had raided the Negev and the Carathites of Judah and Caleb and Ziklag we burned. David asked him, can you take us to the raiders? Promise me by God, he said, that you won't kill me or turn me over to my old master and I'll take you straight to them. Now that's a natural inclination to do. Look, if you're... What, what assurance do I have that you're not going to give me back? But, but he'd already been taken in and given food. And he led David to them, and they were scattered all over the place, eating and drinking and gorging themselves on all the loot of the land they had plundered from Philistia and Judah. And David pounced. I want you to pay attention to numbers here. He fought them from the sunrise until the evening of the next day. None of them got away except for 400 of the younger men who escaped by riding on camels. How many people did David have with him? Well, he lost 200. He had 600. He lost 200. He had 400 people with him. And they fought them all day, and none of them got away except for 400. You know what that means? They were fighting a much bigger force than what they were expecting. That's a lot of Amalekites to beat with 400. David rescued everything the Amalekites had taken, and he rescued his two wives. Nothing and no one was missing, young or old, son or daughter, plunder or whatever. David recovered the whole lot. He herded the sheep and the cattle before them, and they all shouted, David's plunder. Now, as we're talking our way through this, just recognize that these are the same people that wanted to kill him not that long ago. Then they came to the 200 who had been too tired to continue and dropped out at the brook Besor. They came out to welcome David and his band. As he came out, he called out, Success! But all the mean-spirited men who had marched with David objected. They didn't help in the rescue. They don't get any of the plunder we we recovered. The man can have his wife and his children, but that's it. Take them and go. This is the spot where we start to learn what it means to be human in God's kingdom. This is David's thing. Families don't do this sort of thing. Oh, no, my brothers, he said. You can't act this way with what God gave us. Didn't they just fight a battle? Does it seem like God gave it to them? But remember, the numbers were not in their favor. All this, everything they have is from God. You can't act this way with what God gave us. God kept us safe. He handed over the raiders and, uh, who attacked us. Who would ever listen to this kind of talk? The share of the one who stays with the gear is the share of the one who fights. Equal shares, share and share alike. From that day on, David made that the rule in Israel, and it still is. On returning to Ziklag, David shared the plunder to the elders of Judah, his neighbors, with a note saying, a gift from the plunder of God's enemies. And he sent them to the elders of Bethel, Ramoth, Negev, Jatter, Eor, Sifmoth, Estimoah, and some others. I'm not going to read all those names. It doesn't help us at all. Anyway, here's the thing that I need us to get. How did David get his men who are going, mine, 
to share. Did he just rule it that way? Does that work? <clears throat> Say that again. It was done by God. So if everything you have is from God, why are you stingy with it? That's what he's saying, isn't he? If everything we have is from God, are we supposed to be stingy with it? What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to live as Christians as the story tells us? What's the difference between a natural inclination and being led by God? Share with others. Well, but the natural inclination, there's lots of natural inclinations. This is not the hardest thing to sort of see in the world. Um, The United Methodist Church, which we're a United Methodist Church, has a strong history of social justice in its background. But the natural inclination of social justice is, um, within the church, is to do this, is to say, We're doing this, and by the way we're doing this, we're causing God's kingdom to happen. That's a natural inclination. And, you can see, and I can see it in, this, in, this, in the lives of some of the people, not, not necessarily in this, but denominationally, there's a natural inclination to sort of take credit for the work that God's doing in our lives. Now, I'm not just picking on the United Methodist. If we were in a holiness movement church, the natural inclination of a call to holiness, personal holiness, is that the church would then sort of turn inside and look at their own, something we called in seminary, navel-gazing experience. You know, how am I doing? And you just sort of look at you, and you let the world go, and you say, look, by our holiness, we're causing God's kingdom to show up in the world. The natural inclination then is not correct, just as it isn't for us. Even if we're doing things in our community, and we are, the natural inclination is to start to take credit for the work of God in our lives. How would we learn not to do that? How do you learn not to take credit for what God's done in your life? Okay, she says humility. How do you learn? I mean, other than making mistakes and being corrected, how do you learn humility? Be still and listen. It's the same lesson that we were talking about Wednesday night in our Bible study that we we have a couple of new believers in our Wednesday night Bible study and they are thirsty for the word of God. That which is just cool. But they don't have a bunch of knowledge. How would they get knowledge? You've got to be near some people with knowledge. But our people that are older, that have more experience, you know what they sometimes lack? Zeal. And so the people with more experience need the energy of the new, but the people with energy need the experience of, the, of those that have been around a while. And we learn how to be humble by watching and learning and being, and being um, imprinted, if you will, by the leaders that model such behavior. So is there someone in your life that you can look at and go, 
that's a godly person. Whenever they do something, it's just amazing how they serve God and they're not taking their credit, but they just do it. Do you have somebody in your life that is that way? Yes or no? I don't, I'm I'm getting nothing from you. Yes or no? Yes. Okay. So what is the character trait that they have that you need imprinted on your life that's a Christ creation that, that changes your natural inclination, which is to take credit, into the work of God and the leadership of God where you go, I'm doing whatever God wants me to do, and it's okay whether it works or not. I'm with God, and God's there, and he's the one who does the work. How do you do that? So I've said imprinting. Those of you who work in the Monday soup kitchen, who, who sets the tone of the Monday soup kitchen? Who are the two or three people that set the tone in there? I'm, I'm looking for the people that, I'm looking for some of the people that work there. Hey, Wade, you're new. You're new here. Who sets the tone in the kitchen? The dishwasher. <laughs> that's, not the, that's not that far from the truth because the people that do those dishwashers, you know, the people that do that dishwasher, one of them's the lay leader of this church and he just does that. And whenever we have something, he's always in, the, in that room doing dishes. Nobody says, hey, Ken, you have to do dishes, do they? No, he just does it. That's a good imprint thing. But in the kitchen, there's a couple of other people that set tones as they go. Mary Ellen sets a tone. And Marjean, right. So as you go in there and you're asked, how do we do this thing? You say, I want to volunteer in our soup kitchen. You go in there and they, go, and they put you to work. What's the best way to find out how that soup kitchen works? Just Is it to do what you've been asked and just follow the way it's done? Ask questions lots of, but, but get the example. I did this thing years ago. I've talked a little bit about driving for harvest and wheat truck stuff. And, and I realized something the first time I was in a wheat field with farmers who'd been in the wheat field for 50 years that even if I learned every single thing I could that year, I would still know next to nothing about that wheat field next to them. But there was a, there was a guy that drive, drove truck there, and he always seemed to be in the right spot at the right time without being told to get there. And as a first-time guy, so I'm, I was in my 40s, and I was driving harvest truck, and I'd never done it before, what I did was I found somebody that knew how to do it, and I thought, let's learn that lesson. Let's, I'll start asking him why he does what he does. That's the lesson of the soup kitchen of Mary Ellen or, or Marjane or Ken or, or Bill Van Sickle who washes dishes just as often or Dave Evans who washes dishes. There's this group of people that just serve. If you want to serve the Lord and you want to change from your natural inclination, and the natural inclination of church people is come to church and that's enough. That is the natural inclination. Studies show 20% of the people do 80% of the work and 80% of the people do 20% of the work. So the natural inclination of church people is come and watch. 
But if you want to learn what the Lord's life is like, then you're going to come and you're going to find somebody that's doing some work that, and let them imprint the, the life of Christ that's been imprinted on them on you and start to see how that happens. That's David's role in this text. The, the example from one of the uh, commentaries that I have says it this way, that over his life what David had experienced from God, the Egyptian experienced from David. Think about that. The Egyptian had nothing to offer, really. And, and the quote here is, not a man, not a mouse slips through the cracks. And then eating his fill at a banquet of water, figs, and raisins. When we're living this life right, this is what happens. We pass on the experience. We pass on the God experience to the people we meet. And they experience a piece of what we've experienced in God. When you run into somebody and they say, wow, your life is different, or I, what's different about you? Why do you do that? They're not asking for a math problem and saying, well, go, go do this or that. What they're asking for is essentially to say, what touched your life? Just share that with me. You have a witness for Christ. David had a witness for God amongst the people that were the rabble, if you will, the mean men. And what he did was he used his example of how God had treated him to teach them how to be. If you've been touched by God and somebody asks you what to do or how to do it or, or anything about it, you have a piece of knowledge that nobody else has. What's been done for you? So we've, I've asked you several questions today. One of them was, do you have somebody that in your life that is an example of what Christ is like? If you get a chance, I'm going to ask a homework assignment. Are you ready? Take some time this week and ask them what it is or how it is that God touched their life and just ask them for their personal experience of how God touched their life. And the second part of that experience is, as you walk and go around after that, start thinking about how it was that God touched your life. So that when somebody can ask you, you can give the answer too. My alarm is going off, which tells me it's 10 minutes to the end of the service right now. And we have communion. What? Well, no, I've got communion to do. I just want you to know that I'm trying to be time conscious for my musicians as well. (laughs) And so, if you will, that's your homework assignment. What was the homework assignment? Ask ask somebody that's a good example for you how God touched their life and then spend some time thinking about how God has touched your life so that if you're asked, you'll be able to give that answer as well. That's how the body of Christ teaches the difference between natural inclination and how we can be living God's way. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I thank you for today. I thank you for a text that can be kind of difficult to handle. I thank you for this this company of believers that we would be your people, I ask. Help us find that way in us.
Amen. So we have